Oh, please, and open it to the book of Judges in the Old Testament this morning. Judges chapter 4. We're back in the book of Judges after taking a little break last Sunday to focus on the resurrection of Jesus. Since that's the day that we remember that, we mark that. And while we drew our attention, our particular attention to the resurrection and to the gospel last Sunday, I want to take this opportunity to remind us that the entire scripture, all of scripture, points to that end, right? All of scripture is pointing us to Jesus. All of scripture is pointing us to the sacrifice of Jesus. All of scripture is pointing us to the resurrection of Jesus. All of the scripture is pointing us to the gospel in which we believe. And I want to say that in particular because in the book of Judges we come across these wild and orthodox, unorthodox stories, as we're going to see one as an example this morning, even these stories are pointing us to Christ, pointing us to His death and resurrection, pointing us to the Gospel. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God might, may be competent, equipped for every good work. And he also says in Romans 15, verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And just as a reminder, in Paul's day, what we today call the Old Testament was the Scripture. Right? The Scripture was what we call the Old Testament. The New Testament was still being written. Paul is writing the New Testament when he writes Second Timothy and Romans. And so even when we come across these difficult passages, we can do as Charles Spurgeon once advised and make a beeline to the Gospel to illuminate our understanding and to edify us in our walk. So just to remind ourselves of the context here in Judges chapter 4, the book of Judges tells the stories of the Judges following the same narrative pattern. I was remembering, I used to, a while back, many, I don't know, 15 years ago, I was teaching at Florida State, teaching a class called Introduction to the Old Testament. I did a whole uh, lecture on the Judges, and so I remember this diagram. You can do the next slide there, Doug. And so I've kind of pulled it and asked Chris to put it in the PowerPoint. So this is kind of the, a, a visual illustration of kind of how the stories in Judges go. Right? Israel sinned against the Lord. And as a result, the Lord brought judgment on His people for their sin. Israel then cried out to the Lord for relief. And then the Lord graciously saved them by their oppressors. It follows that generic pattern. In fact, we see that pattern back in chapter 2. Before the writer gets into any of the stories about the judges, he gives to us the lay of the land. He gives to us the template. Right? He gives to us the literary pattern, the literary structure of how he is going to tell these stories. And we've seen that already play out in the stories about the judges Othniel and Ehud back in chapter 3. What has not yet become apparent, but I think will beginning today in chapter 4, is that each time we move through that cycle, the situation gets worse. In fact, Doug, if you go to the next slide, we can see here kind of a, a downgrade, if you will. So at Othniel, you can see that the years of press were eight. But by Ehud, the next judge, they were now, Israel was oppressed for 18 years. And now today, as we get into the story of Deborah and Barak, the, uh, the years of, that they were oppressed were 20. Not much more than 18, but still, it's getting, things are getting worse. Right? 
each time we move through this cycle, things are getting worse. Now, when the Lord saves them, he gives them a period of years, a number of years in which they experience salvation. The first, first one was 40 years, kind of the ideal time frame. With Ehud, it gets a little bit better. But now we're going to start seeing a, a downgrade even then. We're going to go back to 40. And as we move through the rest of the judges, it will become less and less time in which they do not experience that oppression as judgment for their sin. So rather than calling this a cycle that the judges, the stories of the judges move through, I prefer to call it a downward spiral because every time we move through that cycle, things get worse and worse and worse. The sins are more egregious. God's judgment lasts a little longer. The judges are more flawed and the period of deliverance is shorter. And I think we're going to see that stand out in today's passage. Today in Judges chapter 4, we're introduced to the third major judge. His name is Barak. And I use major not because he is more important than the others, but because major judges are different from the minor judges because the minor judges have less written about them. We have more written about Barak and Ehud and Gideon and Samson than we do about the minor judges. And we're going to see this morning that Barak is definitely a downgrade from Ehud and Othniel back in chapter 3. And even as God uses him to deliver his people, we see that he is overshadowed by two women. And the writer of Judges sees that as an indictment on Barak, on the leadership, the spiritual leadership of the people of Israel, and upon the Israelites themselves. So let's look at our passage, beginning in verse 1. I want to read through all of chapter 4, Judges chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ahu died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in the Ananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. 
And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hathor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her in the t- into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was sleeping, lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And, be, and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Interesting passage. As we work through this passage, I want to follow the same outline that we've been using the previous two, in the previous two passages in Judges 3, the passages on Othniel and Ehud, because again, that's the way that the writer has structured his stories, including this story in chapter 4. So let's begin with where he begins, which is in verse 1, with the announcement about Israel's sin. Israel's sin. The verse says in verse 1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ahu died. So the people of Israel had peace. They had rest for 80 years. They had experienced God's blessing. They had experienced God's peace. They had experienced prosperity. This were, these were the results of the salvation that he had provided to them through Ahu the judge at the end of chapter 3. But we see that after Ahu died, after 80 years of prosperity, after 80 years of peace, after 80 years of God's salvation, Israel relapsed once again into a familiar pattern. They once again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, the writer does not specify here what the specific reason is, but we look back in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, and also verse 19, also back in chapter 3, verse 7, that the issue here is that the fact that the Israelites had abandoned the Lord, they had forsaken the Lord, they had forsaken their covenant obligations, they had forsaken their covenant commitments, they were disobeying God's commandments, they were disobeying the confines of the covenant relationship He had given to them, and specifically how they were doing that was in worshiping pagan gods. Despite God's love for them, despite God's ongoing grace towards them, the Israelites continued to express the depravity of their hearts. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They gratified the lusts of their flesh. They disobeyed God's explicit commandments. So the victory and the peace that God had given Israel through Ehud had failed to root out the paganism that dwelt deep into their heart. Just the externals of God's salvation, God changing their circumstances, God showing them grace, God relating to them in a way that would show His love and grace and peace that didn't change the sinfulness that was in their heart. And so what we see in chapter 4 verse 1 is another sad turn in an otherwise beautiful story of God's redeeming love. 
And while I won't belabor the point here as I have in the other sermons, I think we would be remiss to, if we didn't pick up on the spiritual lesson. Right? We too are sinful people. But unlike Israel, we have received new covenant grace in which our depraved and sinful hearts of stone have been removed from us and we have received hearts of flesh, hearts that are alive with love for God, hearts that are grateful for the work of salvation He has brought to us, hearts that are now oriented to obeying Him, desiring to please Him, desiring to walk in His way. But like Israel, we still face the temptation of sin. We face moments of weakness. You may have experienced that this week yourself. Struggling to obey the very word that God has given to us. Failing to obey the commandments He has given for us to walk in as His people. Like the hymn writer said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. How true that is. How true that is. And so we are reminded by verse 1 to take an honest, sober look at our lives and to kill the sinfulness that would lead us astray from Christ just as it did Israel here at this moment in time. Well, how did God respond to Israel's sin? Well, He responded with judgment. We see God's judgment in verse 2. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. God gave His people up to this foreign ruler. God responded to Israel's sin with judgment because that is what the price of sin requires. That's the cost of sin. Paul reminds us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Sin creates enmity with God. Sin signals our rebellion against God. We must remember that God is righteous and He is holy and He has established righteousness as the means by which all creation is to live before Him. And so as His creatures, we are obligated to live according to God's righteousness. When we fail to live according to that righteousness, then God must hold us to account, right? If I break a law, if I, break, if I commit a crime, the governing structure of our society says that I must pay the penalty for that crime. The reason why we do that is because that is God's economy. When we violate God's holy standards, when we break His law, then we deserve the punishment that goes with it. The punishment being God's wrath. And that's exactly what's happening here to Israel. Israel sinned against the Lord. And in God's divine economy, He was obligated to judge His people for their sins. How did God judge His people? Well, He brought foreign enemies against them. He brought them under the oppression of foreign enemies. And in this case, it is Jabin, the king of Canaan. We see that his seat of power was in Hatzor, which was a city in the northern part of Israel, about 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. The writer mentions in verse 3 that he treated the Israelites cruelly, for he had 900 chariots of iron, it says at the end of verse 3, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, we don't know exactly how this took place, how he enacted this, but the 900 chariots of iron indicates that the suffering that was brought upon Israel was primarily military in nature. Now, a word on the iron here. During this period, iron was considered a military advancement over bronze. Most cultures in this society at this time used bronze, 
But as iron was being uh, discovered, as iron was being utilized and refined, they found that it was much superior to weapons of bronze. And so to have iron as weapons, it was more durable, it was, it was stronger. To have iron weapons provided those who had them a military advantage over those who were using weapons of warfare that were made out of bronze. The chariots here are also an advantage for the Canaanites, especially in level areas. And so in the plains and the fields where much of the Israelite nation settled, right, because it's good agricultural land, they were, they were uh, an advantage, right? They, they provided a military advantage over the Israelites, these chariots did. In the mountainous areas, they were difficult to use, but in the plains and in the fields, the chariots gave the Canaanites military superiority over the Israelites. And so in God's sovereignty, Jabin used the chariots of iron to oppress his people Israel cruelly for 20 years. That was the length of God's wrath. He was judging his people for 20 years. And again, we see another instance here of how the situation gets worse every time we move through the cycle. Well, this is what Israel experienced, but we as New Covenant believers can be grateful that under the New Covenant that God will not judge us for our sins. This is why we were celebrating so much last Sunday, Easter, Good Friday, remembering what Christ has done for us. Why is that so important? Well, it's because Christ bore the judgment that we deserved. So imagine, for example, that there is no Jesus. When we get to the end of our lives, we're going to have to stand before God and give an account of our lives, and every single one of us would be guilty. And because God is righteous, He would mete out His judgment, His justice against us. We would deserve to face His his wrath, not just for a moment of time, but for eternity. So this is the good news of what Christ has done. That when Jesus came, He died on the cross and suffered God's wrath for us. He bore our sins. God poured out His wrath upon Jesus so that we would never have to face God's judgment again. Such grace that God has shown to us should move us to praise and adoration of our merciful God and what He has done for us. And yet, though God does not judge His children, we must not presume upon the Lord by ongoing sinfulness. The grace of the gospel leads us to enduring faithfulness. As we saw last week, or two weeks ago, God will discipline those that He loves. And we must accept that discipline as the sign of a Holy Father's love for us. But let us not purposefully trample upon God's grace. Let us not take license to sin because Jesus bore the judgment that you were due for that sin. It would make a mockery of what Christ has done for us. Brothers and sisters, sin is serious business. We cannot take it lightly. Again, we only have to look to the cross and see what God did to His only Son to atone for our sins. God's judgment upon Israel highlight, God's judgment upon Israel for their sin highlights the seriousness of sin. And it illustrates both the final judgment that is coming for sinners who do not believe in Christ, as well as the cross that God provided as the remedy for sin and salvation from His wrath. Israel did not yet have that. They had the signs of it. They had the hope of it. They had the promise of it. But they did not yet have the gospel as we had. And so Israel endured God's wrath. They endured God's judgment for their sins. God's judgment brought upon them great distress, as we see in verse 3 that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. 
So for 20 years, the Israelites are suffering under Jabin. He is oppressing them and treating them cruelly for that lengthy period of time. And so they cry out to the Lord in their distress. As we have seen in previous cases, crying out to the Lord did not mean true repentance. They were merely not happy with their circumstances. They were crying out a cry of pain or a cry of desperation, a cry of help. Oh Lord, get me out of this situation because of their distress. They're in pain. They're looking for help. They're looking for relief from their misery. And so, again, in an interesting way, they turn to the Lord. They don't turn to the idols, the pagans that they had been worshiping when they abandoned the Lord. They turned to the Lord. But nowhere here does Israel acknowledge their sinfulness. They nowhere acknowledge the source of their distress. There's no repentance for their wrongdoing. There's no promise or commitment to return to the covenant, to be faithful to the covenant. They just want an easy way out of their circumstances. They just want to return to the good old days, the good and happy times, without acknowledging the reason for their misery, which is their sin. And again, we can learn from Israel's situation. What God requires for ongoing fellowship with Him is true repentance. Sinners cannot come into a right relationship with God without repentance because sin is the source of our enmity with God. There can be no fellowship with God apart from confession of sin and repentance from sin. And that is why when we proclaim the gospel, we call people not only to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but to repent of their sins. The biblical language is repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trusting in Christ is joined with repentance because entrusting ourselves to Christ means that we will forsake sin. Why do we forsake sin? Because it causes enmity with God. It causes hostility with God. It is an act of rebellion against God. Again, for Christians... We repent when we first come to faith in Jesus Christ. We understand the horror of our sins. We see what Christ has done for us. And so when we believe the gospel, we at the same time repent of our sins. But brothers and sisters, repentance is not just simply a one-time thing that we do to check off the list. Repentance is is ongoing because sin is ongoing. And as much as the New Testament calls us to put to death the old way of life, we still inevitably find ourselves sinning. Sinning. And so what is God's remedy for that sin? It is the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It is by His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead that we have forgiveness of sins. And so by trusting in Christ, we apply His work to our sin and we are assured of His forgiveness. But that trust in Christ is joined to repentance because we acknowledge that sin does not befit the Christian life. Sin has no place in the Christian life. And so while the people of Israel here are right to turn to the Lord, they fail to turn to Him properly. And yet God is still gracious with His people. Now before we move on, it's at this point in the story there's sort of a a twist in the plot, right? Israel's crying out to the Lord for help occurs at least somewhat by means. Now, in the stories of Othniel and Ehud back in chapter 3, all we're told is that Israel cried out to the Lord. We don't know how they cried out, but they cried out to the Lord and the Lord responded. 
But here in chapter 4, verses 4, 5, we see how Israel cried out to the Lord. In this instance, they approached the, prop, the, the prophetess Deborah. See that in verse 5. Now, Deborah's biography is sparse. We don't know much about her, but we are told three things about her by way of introduction. We know, we know her husband. In verse 4, she is the wife of Lapidoth. We also know that she is a prophetess. Although the, the text does not give us any details about how she functioned in that role, we do know from the Old Testament that though it was rare, there were some women who served as prophetesses. We have five who are identified, although one of those is considered to be a false prophet or false prophetess. And while in God's sovereignty, God used Deborah, and he used a few others for this role, this does not seem to be God's ordinary way of providing prophets for his people in the Old Testament. In fact, many aspects of this story, I think they'll become more clear as we go through them, many aspects of the story suggest that Deborah fulfilling this role at this time was an indictment on this spiritual and moral condition of the people of Israel. The third thing that we know about Deborah is that she judged Israel at this time. You see that in verse 4. She was judging Israel. In verse 5, it says that she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. That describes sort of how she judged Israel. And when you read that, in the English translation, it sounds like the Israelites were individually coming to Deborah looking for wisdom to settle their disputes, right? Looking for her to adjudicate various cases. So, for example, let's say Adam and I have a beef and we need someone to help us. We go to Deborah and she hears our case and she renders judgment. We go away. You know, Tim and John have a beef. They go up to Deborah. She hears their case. She adjudicates. That's what it sounds like. That's probably not what's happening here. The Hebrew would indicate that they were coming to her looking for God's answer to their cries for his help. There's a couple of reasons for this. First of all, in the book of Judges, the phrase, the people of God, refers exclusively to the nation as a corporate entity and how they acted corporately. So these aren't individuals coming to Deborah in waves, sort of in a line, like we would go to the courthouse to uh, have a judge settle our civil disputes, but they are coming corporately to her. They are assembling corporately before her, seeking God's response to their cry. Second, the word judgment in verse 5 is ought to be translated as the judgment. In the Hebrew, it's preceded by the definite article, indicating that the Israelites were looking for a particular judgment. They were looking for a particular answer, we might say. They weren't looking for individual decisions about their disputes. They were looking for a particular answer. In other words, as they're crying out to the Lord, they're coming to Deborah, they're crying out to the Lord, they want to know, what does the Lord say to them about this situation? How is the Lord going to answer them? They want God's verdict to their pleas. They want to know, is he going to deliver them from Jabin's oppression or not? So the Israelites are approaching Deborah for the judgment, looking for God's answer, begging her to ask God, begging God to answer through her. Which leads to another question. Why are the Israelites going to her? Why are they going to Deborah to inquire of the Lord's word? According to Exodus 28, God endowed the high priest with the ability to discern and relate God's will to the people. He provided the priest 
the Urim and Thummim as instruments of divine revelation. In other words, if they want to know what God says, they ought to be able to go to the priest. And the priest can use the means that God gave him, the Urim and Thummim, to determine, to tell them how they are to act, what God's answer is in their situation. So why are the Israelites going to Deborah and not to the high priest? Well, it would seem that at this point in Israel's history, as in everything affecting the nation, that the priests have also become corrupt. The nation is corrupt for sure, we get that. But the priesthood is also infected with this corruption. We know from the early chapters of 1 Samuel that the priests were deceptive and greedy and profligate and abusive. And so they could not discern the word of the Lord because they were just as corrupt as the people. In other words, they had abdicated their responsibility as mediators between God and men. So the only place where faithfulness can be found in all of Israel is Deborah. She describes herself as a mother in Israel in chapter 5 or 7 in her song, which we'll look at next week. In other words, Deborah is the anomaly. Deborah is the faithful one. In all of Israel, where can faith be found? Well, it's found in this mother of Israel, Deborah, who is faithful to the Lord who receives the Lord's word, who communicates it to the people. Now, with Old Testament eyes, I think that the nation turning to Deborah for help signifies here an indictment upon the nation and upon the priesthood. A serious downgrade has taken place in Israel. Things are so bad, again, with Old Testament eyes, they turn to a woman for spiritual help. Now, again, this says nothing about Deborah's capability. This says nothing about Deborah's ability. This says nothing about her spiritual condition. It simply reveals that this has, is out of order, if you will. This defies the pattern that God has set for his people. It defies the order that God had established for leadership in Israel. The nation going out to Deborah is out of order. But, this is the good news. In God's providence, he provided Deborah to them as a means of grace. In other words, the word of the Lord will come through Deborah for the people. She will communicate God's graciousness and God's faithfulness to the people. And so what does Deborah do in this situation? The people are going to her, looking to her for the judgment. What is God going to say? How is he going to respond to our calls for help? And that brings us then to the last part of this cycle, the last part of this outline, if you will, that the writer of Judges is giving us. It's the longest part, and that is God's salvation. Deborah fulfills here the role that has been abdicated by the priests, and she reveals the judgment. God will graciously save his people again. Now, she doesn't say that explicitly, but that's the message in what she does next in the next part of the story. God is going to raise up a deliverer for his people. He's going to raise up a deliverer to save Israel from Jabin, the king of Canaan. And that deliverer is Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, we see in verse 6. And we know nothing more about Barak's biography. But Deborah summons Barak and reveals God's word to him. So look in verse 6, the latter part of verse 6. She said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with 
his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. So notice two things about her statement there in verses 6 and 7. First, the words that she speaks are the the Lord's words. They are the Lord's words. She says, has not the Lord God commanded you? She is speaking God's word here to Barak. This isn't Deborah's good advice. This isn't Deborah's strategy for Barak. But these are the Lord's commands. This is what Barak is to submit himself to. The Lord here is commanding Barak to gather 10,000 troops from Zebulun and Naphtali and to make war against Jabin's commander, Sisera. The second thing here that we see from what Deborah says is that the Lord will give Barak and the Israelites victory in their battle against Sisera. Although Barak here is the human agent whom God uses, it is the Lord himself who will deliver Sisera into Barak's hand. In fact, notice the the I words there in verse 7. He says, and this again, the Lord speaking, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. In other words, this is the Lord's doing. The Lord is going to deliver his people. The Lord is going to set up the strategy. The Lord is going to bring Sisera out. The Lord is going to bring him into a vulnerable position. The Lord is going to give Barak and the Israelites a great victory. They're going to defeat him. But it is the work of the Lord. Barak is simply the human agent whom God uses to do that. So Barak doesn't need to devise a strategy. He doesn't need to train his troops. The Lord is going to give him victory over Jabin and Sisera. And even the advantages of the Canaanite army, these 900 chariots of iron, will be no match for the Lord. I can imagine Barak thinking, man, they've got those 900 chariots of iron. They've been oppressing with those, with the, uh, us with those for, for 20 years. How are we going to overcome that advantage? The Lord says, they're no match for me. They're no match for my people. And so Yahweh is the real hero in this story. We might tend to look at the human agent, but the Lord, it's the one thing we must not forget in the book of Judges. The Lord is the deliverer. We see the names of men. We see Othniel, Ehud, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Gideon. But it is the Lord who is the deliverer of his people. It is the Lord who brings salvation to his people. He's the Savior. He's the Savior. Now, in spite of these assurances, what does Barak say in verse 8? And he equivocates, right? If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So he will... Only obey the Lord's command. He conditionally obeys the Lord's commands. I will only obey the Lord's commands, Deborah, if you go with me. Now, as a prophetess, Deborah's presence with Barak ensures that Barak will have the word of the Lord near him in the midst of battle. So as long as Deborah is with him, Barak assumes that the Lord will be with him and will provide his word so that he can obey. But Barak's compromise with Deborah smacks of disobedience. Barak appears here to be weak-willed, perhaps even fearful. The Lord had spoken. The Lord had made his promise to Barak. And we see no other place in the Old Testament where a warrior needs a prophet to go with him into battle. This doesn't seem to be Barak's shining moment, does it? His finest hour. And it's at this point that I could really lay into Barak about his faithlessness. But there's one thing that gives me pause. And that's Hebrews 11, verses 32 to 34. 
And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. The writer of Hebrews has given to us his hall of fame of faith, his hall of faith, right? These are the people that we should look to as examples of faithfulness. And there is, is, there's Barak's picture. This was a man of faith. And so as surprising as it is from reading Judges 4, Barak, along with some of these other questionable judges we'll get to down the line, Barak is commended for his faith and held up as an example of faith. Now, I will confess, this is a bit of a mystery for me. But I will say, the scripture is true and every man is a liar. We can critique Barak for his equivocation and we can commend him for his faith in ultimately obeying God's command and leading Israel into battle. While we want to emulate the best parts of Barak's faith, like any other man, we also can eschew the more questionable parts. And so... We do see here Barak's equivocation, but we will ultimately see a greater aspect of faith in which he believed God's word, went to battle, and found success. Well, Deborah responds to Barak in verse 9 in two ways. And she says in verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So she will go with Barak, as Barak has asked. But she also announces that the glory that Barak would have attained as being the leader of Israel and bringing victory to Israel over their great enemies will now go to a woman instead. And again, with Old Testament eyes, this would have been considered a disgrace to Barak and a blight upon Israel. So, assured here by Deborah that she will go with him, And in obedience to God's command that he had given through Deborah, Barak mustered his army in preparation for battle. Now, Sisera, we haven't talked much about him, but Sisera is the commander of the Canaanite army. And he received word somehow that Barak had gathered his troops and was mustering an army and preparing for battle at Mount Tabor. And so in response, Sisera mustered up his own army, including those 900 iron chariots, and began to advance toward the river Kishon. And I won't get into the great details here. I do have a map. You can show the map here. So right here, I don't know if you can see that purple. This is Mount Tabor. This is where Barak is. He's gathered his troops there. This is Sisera over here on this side of the country, on the western side. And so as he hears that Barak is gathering his troops, he begins to move to the east, and he gets stalled right there at the river Kishon. It's at this point that Deborah reminds Barak to fight bravely in chapter 4, verse 14. She reassures him that the Lord will give him victory. She says, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? She's reminding Barak here that the, the, the battle belongs to the Lord, that victory belongs to God, that he is the one who will fight for his people. He is the one who will bring deliverance for them. The song of Deborah, which comes in the next chapter, chapter 5, and in particular verses 21 and 22, which provides us some additional details about what's not written in this account. 
would indicate that the Lord sent a torrential rainstorm just prior to the battle. And that rainstorm softened up the ground there at the Kishon River Valley, and that the iron chariots that the Canaanites depended upon were essentially stuck in the mud, and that the horses that were used to pull those chariots couldn't gain traction in the mud, and so they became sitting ducks. It's at that point then that the Barak and the Israelites swooped in, and they eradicated the Canaanite army. And verse 15 gives to us that account, and the Lord routed, again, there it is, the Lord is the Savior, right? The battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Again, the text here is emphasizing once again that the battle belongs to the Lord. It's the Lord who gave his people victory. Now, interestingly enough, remember that the, the opponents here are Canaanites. And so what the Israelites do here at the battle of the Kishon River is what they should have done all along, right? That was the command that God gave to Joshua several decades before, many decades before. That when you come into the promised land, what are you to do to the Canaanites? You are to eradicate them, you are to destroy them, you are to wipe them out. And so here is an instance that though they are late to the party, they are in this instance obeying the command that the Lord had given them to wipe out the Canaanites. Do not let these people stay, because if you, you, you allow them to live with you, you will grow up side by side with them, and they will tempt you with their idolatry. That's exactly what happened. But at least here in this instance, they obey the Lord's command. All of those, all of Sisera's troops, all of Jabin's troops, are put to the sword. Except for one, and that's in verse 16, that Sisera was able to make an escape. And we see in, verses seven, in verse 17 that he manages to take refuge in the tent of Heber the Kenite. Now the Kenites were descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Hobab. You might also know him by the name Jethro or Reuel. That name appears other times in the Old Testament. Hobab, we know from Exodus, feared Yahweh. He feared the Lord. He gave refuge to Moses upon his first escape from Egypt. After the Exodus... Haber, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Hobab's family became allies, the Kenites became allies with the Israelites. But Heber had separated from his people. He had moved to the north. He had made an alliance with Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. And he was probably serving as a kind of a spy for Jabin. In fact, he may be the one who told uh, Jabin and Sisera that Barak had mustered his army and he was preparing battle against them. Well, Sisera here, in his escape, takes advantage of this alliance. He, looking, he looks for refuge in, in Heber's tent until the coast is clear and then make his way of escape. Well, Jael, Heber's wife, welcomes him into the tent. And she agrees to hide him. She gives him a place to sleep, provides him with a blanket and a glass of warm milk, provides the, and promises here to divert anybody that's looking for him to sort of send them away, to distract them, to, to get them off the scent, if you will. But while Sisera is sleeping, he falls into a deep sleep, right? He's tired, he's worn out, he's been fighting, now he's been fleeing. He's tired, he falls into this deep sleep, and while he is sleeping, Jael creeps up to him and takes a tent peg and hammers it right through the temple of his head. I guess we could say that Sisera died of a splitting headache. Thank you for laughing at my dad joke. 
What a depth, right? Last week we saw the sword going into the really fat guy with the fat rolling over the sword's handle. This week we got a tent peg going through a guy's. How is Judges not an exciting book? How do people not like it, right? Great stuff. So the key point to make here is the point that the writer ends on in verses 23 and 24, which is that God did what he promised to do. He brought salvation to his people. He saved his people on that day. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed hard, harder and harder against the, Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. You see how he says Jabin, the king of Canaan, three times. That's the way in Hebrew of making the point. Got him. He's dead. Also, the word subdued is the same root, or similar sounding root at least, to the word Canaan. In other words, he really got him. He was dead. God's salvation for his people is total. No longer were the Israelites oppressed. God's hand of judgment had been lifted against them. And now they enjoyed the salvation of the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 31, which completes the story, which we'll get to next week, says that the Israelites enjoyed the fruit of God's salvation. They enjoyed peace and rest and prosperity for 40 years. So another generation lived to see the goodness of God's salvation. Now what do we do with this story about God's salvation? What do we do with this wild and unorthodox way of bringing salvation to His people? Well, despite its quirkiness, Judges 4 reminds us that salvation belongs to the Lord. Though we are sinful, and though we deserve God's wrath, God is gracious and merciful. He saves. And not only does He save, but He delights in saving sinners. God doesn't farm out the work of salvation. He doesn't give it to Barak and say, okay, you do it now. He doesn't give it to Deborah. He doesn't give it to Othniel or to Ehud. He doesn't give it to the judges. He does it for himself. We see that's exactly how he does it. He used means, in this case. And for us, he sent his son into this world. He took on human flesh. He lived the perfect life. And then he went to the cross. And died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And so that we could enter into a right relationship with Him. And in His resurrection from the dead, Jesus put a tent peg through the head of His enemies, putting them to death once and for all, for us. As we read last week, that's why it all comes together, brothers and sisters. I could have preached on this passage last week. I know it would have probably upset some people, but I could have preached on this passage last week. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection, friends, is the final blow against all of God's enemies. They've all been rendered powerless. powerless. In God's sovereignty, Yes, they continue to work their woe, but they are on a leash, and their time is limited. What we need to understand here is that God saves his people, and he does it through his appointed agent. Where the Israelites had Barak in this moment, Jesus is the one who is greater than Barak. We see that Barak was an imperfect judge. He was weak-willed, perhaps fearful. But he mustered the faith to obey God and brought God's perfect victory as a result of God's work in him. 
But Barak points us to one who is greater. Barak points us to Jesus. Because Jesus fulfills all that Barak promised. Unlike Barak, Jesus was a perfect man. And though he was humble and meek, he was not weak-willed. When he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't shirking his responsibility to go to the cross and save his people. He wasn't equivocating. He was making a statement burdened by what the cross would cost him. But what does he immediately say after he utters those words? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We see his commitment, which was the prevailing conviction that oriented his entire life. Not what I will but what you will. Jesus submitted his life fully to God so that he could do what God had sent him to do. And unlike Barak, Jesus embraced his mission to save his people. He did all that God required him to do, and he saved us. All praise and glory go to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, just as we rejoiced last week on Easter Sunday, let us also continue to rejoice It's one of the reasons why I don't want to get too caught up on Easter. I don't want to overemphasize it too much and make it just a yearly thing because, friends, the church gathered not yearly, but we gathered weekly. Why did we come back today and not wait till next Easter? Because we need to be reminded of this weekly. We need to be reminded of this good news. And that good news will cause us to rejoice. Jesus is still alive today. He has brought to us His victory and power through His resurrection. And that power and victory endures even to this day. Christ has nullified every power that held us in bondage. We've been set free to walk in a new way of life. So let us arise and walk forth boldly in the victory that He has granted to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful for Your Word And as strange as some of these things seem to us, Lord, we thank you that your word is perfect and it is true. Believe every single word of it. Because we've seen how it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for his sacrifice. Thank you so much for his resurrection. Help us, Lord, not to do evil again in the sight of the Lord but help us to go forth, to put away the sinful life, to put away that which is evil among us, and to rise up and walk in this new way you've set before us. Give us the grace and give us the power to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.